I want you to think about something. Even though these two chapters give all the regulations for detecting leprosy and cleansing a leper, there's not a single example in the Old Testament of a Jewish person ever being healed of leprosy. Not one. We mentioned a couple, or at least a example last week of someone being healed of leprosy, but it wasn't a Jewish person. It was Naaman the Syrian. Remember Naaman? Naaman the, the, the Syrian soldier in 2 Kings chapter 5 who came to Elijah to be healed of leprosy. Elijah said, go wash in the Jordan River, and he washed seven times eventually, and he was healed. But not a single Jewish person in the Old Testament, at least as far as our, our study is concerned, there's no one in the Old Testament. You cannot find a Jewish person who was healed of leprosy, which would render these laws moot. It makes them unnecessary, irrelevant. These laws are for people who have been healed of leprosy, not for people who might just be, who, who don't have leprosy. This isn't again about healing someone. It's about cleansing someone who has been healed. The only other example of leprosy that we see a Jewish person getting is King Uzziah. 2 Kings chapter 15 and 2 Chronicles 26, talk, 26 talks about King Uzziah. Uzziah who went into the temple in all of his pride and he was doing pretty well for a king. And it's funny, if you study through the kings of Israel, you get great hope. And then it's dashed on the rock with every single king because every one of them does what their father did. And just as you start to think, maybe they're getting it right, maybe they're going back to the Lord again, they blow it again. Well, Isaiah was doing very well. And the kingdom was growing and things were doing great. And he went into the temple to offer incense himself. The priest there said, get out of here. What are you doing? You can't. You're not allowed to do that. This is a major violation. And he instead grabbed the censer as if to offer incense and suddenly leprosy broke out on his forehead. And King Isaiah spent the rest of his life living in a house by himself, a leper. But that's the only example we even have of a Jew getting leprosy and he wasn't healed. So once again, you've got Leviticus 13 and 14, these two great chapters on cleansing a leper, and yet absolutely no application. They're completely irrelevant for the Jewish people, that is, until Jesus came along. And suddenly, they become relevant. Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. This is also repeated in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. We read this last week. A leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And this will be the first of many healings of leprosy during Jesus' ministry. Suddenly, the priests had to get out and dust off this old law. It was useless to them. Because now, all of a sudden, lepers are starting to show up. Non-lepers. Healed lepers. They're showing up. They come to the priest and saying, Hey, I had leprosy yesterday, but today I saw Jesus and I'm healed, so I need to go through the, the ceremonial cleansing. And the priests are going, What? And if, if my guess is correct here... There, there was never a single healing of leprosy until Jesus came onto the planet. Until he started walking around healing people. And so the priests must have been grabbing their old notes, pulling out the old scrolls. How do we even do this? We've never used this before. God knows what he's doing. God is sovereign. But listen to this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. When John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus didn't say the lepers are healed. Although that's what he was doing. He was healing them. Jesus said the lepers are cleansed. They're cleansed. In other words, for the first time now, the lepers could go and receive the biblical, Levitical, ceremonial cleansing that they were supposed to get after they had been healed. And this brought messianic implications to Israel. Listen to Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The word afflicted there. When Jesus says, and Jesus later will quote this, this is the the passage you may recall in, in the book of Luke at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He opens up to the scroll of Isaiah and he reads Isaiah 61, verse 7. What I just quoted to you is exactly what Jesus read. And then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back and says, Hey, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the guy. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. And again he says to bring good news to the afflicted. I look up that word afflicted. It's, it's, it's a nav. A nav. To be stunted, humble, and in lowly position. To be stunted as with leprosy. Leprosy was the most humiliating. It would bring you to the lowest position. It literally would stunt you. He also says to bind up the brokenhearted. That's literally the broken. To bind up those who are broken. Those who are torn apart. Bind up is kabash. And it means to wrap firmly or to bandage. It sounds to me like someone tending a leper. But here's the point. Here's the point. The Jewish people had an understanding that there was messianic significance in the healing of a leper. If a leper was actually to be healed, that might be at least one of the signs that Messiah was on the earth. So again, unless I'm reading this again, unless I'm reading this wrong, chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Leviticus are a setup for something that would happen hundreds of years later. A setup, a preparation. It would be set on the shelf and then later would be revealed and utilized in the ministry of Jesus. God does that in our lives. He will give you something. And you won't have any idea why. And it might be an experience. And it might be something in your life that you, that you may be going through right now that's awful. And when it's all said and done, you've been praying, God, give me insight. Help me understand why this is happening. And then you get over it. You get through that horrible season and you look back and you still don't know why. And it gets on the shelf. And you may go years and years and completely forget about it until the time comes when something of messianic significance happens in your life and you remember that experience. You remember that situation. You remember those scars. And you're able to utilize them for the Lord. This is what He does. This whole thing, and it just blew my mind. Two full chapters in the book of Leviticus that would be set aside until the coming of Jesus. For there is really no real healing No real cleansing outside of Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 again says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the messianic source of healing and cleansing. Well, let's read these first few verses here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest. 
And the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look. And if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. Verse 5. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel, watch this, over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. A very unusual and unique ceremony. In fact, it's completely unique compared to all the other offerings in the book of Leviticus. There's nothing like it. In this particular offering, or, or setup, or regulation, the priest leaves the tabernacle. Did you notice that in the first few verses? The priest shall go out, verse 3, to the outside of the camp. Why? Because that's where the leper is. That's where the person with leprosy would be. They can't be in the camp. So the priest goes to him. Isn't that a great picture of Christ? The priest goes to you. The priest leaves the tabernacle and finds you in your leprosy, in your sin, in your disease. He has no problem with that. He goes to you. He brings the healing to you as opposed to making you come to him. A lot of people miss this. They don't get this about Christ. They really think that somehow I've got to straighten out, straighten up, get it clean on my own, and then I can go show up at that church building, and then I can be accepted. No! Jesus is outside of the church trying to reach the lost. Oh, he's in the church. He's with the people gathered together. But the people gathered together have got to get it together, gang, and realize that there's a lost world of hurting people who need Jesus as badly as we did and do. So the priest goes outside, but there are all these interesting little things. Killing a bird over in an earthenware vessel, overrunning water, a cedar wood, scarlet string, hyssop, dipping the live bird in the blood and then letting it go. What's bizarre? What does it mean? I'll tell you on Sunday. You're going to have to wait until then to hear it. After the leper goes through the ritual of the two birds, then he was proclaimed clean. No, I'm really serious. I'm not going to tell you right now because it's too good and there's too much there and it would take all night just on that and everybody in the body needs to hear this. So we're going to move on. Verse 8. The one to be cleansed shall then, and Danny doesn't like that, but sorry buddy, you got to get over it. And then, <laughs> the one to be cleansed shall wash his clothes. Watch this. Shave off all his hair and bathe in water and be clean. Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, <laughs> even all his hair. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. Very interesting. After he's clean, after he's clean, he has to shave everything. Every square inch of his body is shaved. He has no eyebrows. Have you seen someone without eyebrows? And when they shave it off? Maybe you haven't seen that or done that, but it's interesting. You know, you look at the person, you're like, something's not right there. It's missing. I don't... What's going on here? Completely shaved. But then, seven days, they had to remain that way, and then they did the whole process again. What's going on here? Well... I think it's fascinating that we too, just like the leper, have to be washed and shaved. We're washed and shaved when we come to Christ. We're washed, first off, obviously in the water of baptism. 
It's a washing. It is a beautiful, powerful picture of being washed, just like the leper. The leprosy is gone. He's being cleansed. And in the process, this bizarre sacrifice in the first seven verses goes on. And then suddenly he has to go out and wash. And we get washed. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Romans 6 verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death. The significance of the symbol is, is powerful. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Which is the whole point of the shaving. What do you mean by that? Think about this. For a woman... The Bible tells us for a woman, the hair, the hair on a woman's head is the sign of her glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. It's a sign of a woman's glory to have the hair on her head. It's given to her as a sign of her glory, which is why I think less women's hair fall out than men's. You know, we kind of tend to lose a lot faster. It's a good thing it's not our glory, right? But it's a sign of a woman's glory. It also can be, and I'm not saying this about any of you ladies here tonight, but it can also be a sign of her vanity, in fact, <laughs> I'm not going to say it because Cheryl will just slap me silly. <laughs> but it can be a sign of her vanity. And when, when you ladies just think about the, I know, because I, mean, I should just say it now, huh? Well, because you said it just yesterday, you were talking about the vanity of having your hair done. Okay? So that's, okay, well, she's good with it. Well, you're not going to believe this. The other day. No. We were just talking about the hair thing, and she said, I know it's probably vain, but, and then she just described the process by which she got her hair done. Huh? She's not ready to have gray hair yet. Her head's ready, but she's not. So she's taking care of that. And, and that's fine. But again, it's not only a sign of a woman's glory. It can be. It can be a sign of vanity. You think about how much money goes into hair care. <laughs> I didn't even say anything about you, Cindy. It can get a little pricey. But for the man, for the man on the other hand, at least in these times, in, in uh, Old Testament times, the beard was a sign, the beard, a sign of maturity, strength, and pride. You take a lot of pride in that beard and in the mustache. I have tried all my life to grow a mustache. Because I was born with a little cleft lip and cleft palate and have the scars, the hair just doesn't grow well on my upper lip. I get what I've told some of you before, I get the reverse Hitler. It all grows right out of here. <laughs> Seriously, it's just the opposite, you know. <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. But the beer was a sign of maturity and strength, and neither of these things, vanity nor pride, mean a whole lot to the Lord. For if they did, every baby born would be bearded and hairy. We just went and saw Jim and Pam's baby today. Cute, sweet little baby. Little, little cap of hair right there and just completely, you know, hairless other than that. Beautiful little thing. Can you imagine what babies would look like? Like chimpan, little chimpanzees. It would give the evolutionists something to talk about, wouldn't it? But a shaved, washed leper has the clean, hairless look of a newborn baby. That's the point. That's the whole idea. Why would you have a person shave even their eyebrows, shave their entire body because they are fresh and new, completely clean. They look like a baby. And in their cleansing, think about this, they've been born again. 
And that's what happens to us when we come to the Lord, when we are cleansed of our leprosy. We're washed, we're shaved, we look like newborn babies. Oh, maybe not so much physically, but spiritually and inside, we are newborns. But we've still got to deal with this passing of seven days. For again, the leper would come in, they would shave themselves, they would wash themselves, they could go into the camp now, welcome back into the family, into the fellowship of Israel. But they couldn't go and sleep and live in their tent yet. They had to stay out on the outside of their tent. Why is that? I think it was a witness. I think it was so as people are passing by day in and day out for those seven days, they see that healed leper or would have had there been one. A witness, a testimony for seven days. But then they had to do the whole thing over again. Just as the eyebrows are starting to come back, they're gone again. (laughs) Got to look like a weirdo for seven more days. Why? What's the point of this? And how does it apply to us? For the Jew, it would simply signify a complete cleansing. Seven being the number of completion in the Bible. So you wash, you shave, you wait seven days, you wash, you shave again. You are completely healed. You are completely ceremonially cleansed. You now are welcomed back completely into the family. But for the Christian, something unfortunate can happen to us, especially as more mature believers, when we recognize and bask in our maturity. When we think about how much we have learned and how much we know and how much we've truly grown in our righteousness before the Lord... And we say things like, you know, I, I've been involved in church service for years. It's time to let someone else do the serving. Or we say, I, I just don't like those worship nights really anymore. I sang as a kid in youth camp. That was enough singing for me. Well, I've studied that book before. I don't really need to hear it again. We've got people taking the Revelation study, by the way, on Sunday night who took it with me three years ago. We have some people, one person who will remain nameless, but Russ has my notes. Did I say that out loud? He's got my notes from three years ago. And so while I'm sitting here teaching out of my notes, he's over there with my notes, taking notes on me teaching from my notes. Which is very interesting to me. (laughs) People who continue to take it over and over to want more. To see, is is there just one little thing I can glean out of this? Maybe something I missed last time. I want to hear it again. I want to study it again. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1, Put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander, and like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now he doesn't say if. He says like. He doesn't say if you're a newborn baby. Long for pure spiritual milk. He says like newborn babies. Long for the milk of the world. Yeah, but, but, but doesn't Paul say that we're supposed to move on from milk and get into the meat? Yeah, but I still like milk. I have some chocolate cake waiting for me at home when we're done here. A little birthday cake. It would be terrible without milk. You still need the milk. We still drink the milk. We still need the pure, whole, spiritual milk of the Word. Our experience, our wisdom, our maturity never move us beyond the need for a shave and a haircut. We still need it. We still need the cleansing, the ongoing washing. As with water and the Word, Paul says. And so we keep coming back to it over and over and over. And I pray that in your life, I pray in my own life, I never have too much. I never get enough of any particular time of worship. I never get enough of prayer. I never get enough of Bible study. Man, I've studied through the whole Bible three or four times. I'm going to go on to something else. I hope we keep coming back and back and back. Because there's always more. 
The leper waited seven days. Again, the number of completion. And the person who wants to be complete in Christ still needs the water of the word, still needs to shave off the arrogance and the pride with humility. And that's the key. It's coming back to the Lord again and again in humility. It's being washed again and again in the water of the word. It impresses me so much to watch a teaching pastor and I saw this happen just a couple of years ago. I was at a Calvary uh, Chapel pastor's conference. Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, was sitting in the second row while one of the pastors who he had trained and discipled and sent off was up teaching. And I noticed his Bible was open on his knee, his notepad was on his other knee, and he's taking notes. Chuck Smith was taking notes. Like, who knows the Bible better than this guy? Pure spiritual milk of the word. And keeps going back. There's always something. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's great, Lord. Thank you. And it doesn't matter if you've walked with the Lord seven days or seven years or 70 years. You keep in humility coming back to the Father for more and He will feed you. Verse 10. Moving on. Now on the eighth day, the eighth day, He is to take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log one log of oil. That would be about a pint or somewhere under, a little bit under a pint. A log of oil. And the priest who pronounces him clean shall present the man to be cleansed and the aforesaid before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Who is the priest that pronounces you clean? Once again, it's Jesus. And I love this verse. We've read it numerous times recently. You've got to read it again. Jude, verse 24. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Now, watch closely the beauty of this cleansing process as it continues. Verse 12, Then the priest shall take one or the one male lamb and bring it for a guilt offering with the log of oil and present them as a wave offering before the Lord. That means he lifts it up and waves it before the Lord. It is exactly what it sounds like. Verse 13, Next, he shall slaughter the male lamb in the place where they slaughter the sin offering and the burnt offering at the place of the sanctuary for the guilt offering. He's going to slay the lamb for the guilt offering. Like the sin offering, it belongs to the priest. It is most holy. And then, then, you may remember this, the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed. And on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Okay, now we're back to the entrance of the tabernacle, which the leper can now enter because he's cleansed, cleansed so he can enter for worship, but he still needs to be rid of something. He still needs to let something go for it to be gone, for it to be taken away. You know what it is? Guilt. Guilt. He still has to offer the guilt offering. And there are an awful lot of us who come to the Lord and we are cleansed and we are healed. We're washed. We're bathed. We're shaved. We're newborns in Christ. We are new creations. And we sit in worship or we sit in Bible study riddled with guilt. And the Lord says, you've got to do the guilt offering and get that guilt off your back. Don't you understand what it means to be clean? You're clean. Don't cling to the old stuff any longer. If you're thinking about things you did years ago, stuff that's in your life, the baggage that we just don't want to let go of, God says, hey, you are free to that a long time ago. Why do you still want to carry it around? 
guilt. Get rid of the guilt. Satan is the one, by the way, who reminds you of that. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an accuser. He's not one who, who continually brings it to mind, who, who bashes you down and says, Hey, think about what you did last week, you idiot. You want to be my disciple. Come on. Get with it. Pull it together. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak like that. That's Satan. Now, Satan may lie and say he's the Holy Spirit and make you think, you know, that this must be, this must be spiritual. It must be the Lord speaking to me. And Satan's going, yeah, that's right. I think it's the Lord, you guilty person. But remember, remember now what happens here. The guilt offering is offered. And like the high priest himself and the priest, his sons, when they became ordained and consecrated, now this one-time leper, having been healed of being cleansed, they take blood from this guilt offering and they put it on the right earlobe that the person who is cleansed would have his ears attuned to the word of the Lord. And Jesus said again and again, He who has an ear, let him hear. And I love this verse, John chapter 10, verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep. Now, I was talking to the Jewish people. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, Israel. I love that because he's talking about us. I have sheep. I have little lambs i got to go get because they're not a part of Israel. They're not of this fold. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Blood on the right earlobe that we might hear. Blood on the right thumb that the cleansed person would have his hands set to the work of the Lord. His hands are now clean. It's this beautiful symbol of, of cleanliness even in the hand. In John 6.29, Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work. So get your hands busy working. What kind of work? The work of faith. The work of prayer. Believing God. Trusting in Him. Blood on the earlobe, blood on the right thumb, blood on the big toe that the cleansed person would walk in the way of the Lord, whose word is, Psalm 119.105 tells us, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Well, going on, verse 15 says, The priest shall also take some of the log of oil, and this is fascinating, he'll pour it into his left palm. Pour it into his left palm. And then it says, The priest shall then dip his right hand finger into the oil that's in his left palm, and with his finger sprinkle some of the oil seven times before the Lord. This is not on the person who now has been cleansed of leprosy, but before the Lord. He's sprinkling seven times this oil. Of the remaining oil which is in his palm, the priest shall put some on the right earlobe of the one to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, and on the blood of the guilt offering. While the rest of the oil that is in the priest's palm he shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. It's just awesome. Sprinkling the oil seven times before the Lord. It's a double picture here, a very powerful picture of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about over and over, oil in the scriptures tends to always be a portrait of the Holy Spirit. When oil is anointed, someone's anointed by oil, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming on that person. And so this oil is brought and the priest takes it and sprinkles it seven times in front of the Lord which is also a picture of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 talks about the seven manifest ministries of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. But listen to this. 
And if you want to know, by the way, more about the seven number with the Holy Spirit, we'll be looking at that a little bit probably Sunday night in the Revelation study. But this is interesting to me. What's happening here is they're taking some of the oil and they're mixing it with the blood on the earlobe, with the blood on the thumb, and with the blood on the big toe. So you've got this oil-blood mixture which powerfully and poignantly portrays Jesus again. How so? 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, John writes, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with water only, signifying his physical birth, but with water and with the blood, signifying his death. It is, now listen, the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three things that testify together, John says. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three things are in agreement. The Spirit, the oil, mixed with the blood. This picture of Jesus, of the Spirit of Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, the rest of the oil is now poured out over the cleansed person's head in the same way it's now sealing the deal. Sealing the deal. I've asked this question before. We've answered it in different ways. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know for a fact that you are a saved person? If you ever question that or ever wonder, how do I know for sure that Jesus called me home today or called people home today? I'd be one of those who go. One of the ways, one of the ways that we've talked about before is the Word tells you if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Period. So believe it. If you believe with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, you're going to be saved. It's a done deal. But if you're still not sure, if you're still looking for another way to absolutely know, there's more. There's another proof. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul writes, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him He is our Amen to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also, listen, sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He sealed us and He gave us a pledge. What exactly does that mean? The Greek word for sealed. It's not easy to say it. Sfragizo. Sfragizo. You almost kind of have to have a sinus condition to get that one out exactly right. Sfragizo. And it literally means a stamp of security. He gives you the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons you receive the Spirit as a believer is the stamp of security. To sense that security in Christ. To walk in that security. Not to worry if you're wavering or faltering or if it's up to you. But you are secure in Christ. And then that other word, he gave us the spirits in our hearts as a pledge. The Greek word for pledge is arhabon. Arhabon, which literally means a security deposit. You ever given a security deposit? I was so glad that the last day that we moved out of apartment life and actually bought a house. Now I'm kind of thinking maybe we should go back to apartment life because it's a little less expensive. But when we moved out, I remember getting back that security deposit. You remember, you put the security deposit down. It holds the thing. It says, okay, this is yours. This is kind of your guarantee that you've got the place. And it's also our guarantee that when you move out that you know we can take care of the place. And so God says the Holy Spirit's your security deposit for heaven. What do you mean? Well, you show up there. Jesus calls. You show up before Jesus and Jesus takes one look at you and says, do you have the security deposit? Well, I've got the Holy Spirit. You're in. Done deal. How do I know I'm saved? Well, the Word tells me and the Spirit confirms it in my heart. 
So if you're ever kind of waffling or worried or unsure, stop for a moment and just say, Hey, God, I need a reminder today. Holy Spirit, would you just confirm it for me? I've been a little out there, and I just need to know that I'm in your hand. The Holy Spirit is the confirmation, the secure seal in our hearts. Security deposit of the Lord, given in advance, bearing witness to my salvation, as though covered over my head, anointed with precious oil. Oh, the picture's just awesome. Well, verse 19 going on tells us the priest shall next offer the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Then afterwards, he shall slaughter the burnt offering. Verse 20, the priest shall offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be clean. Now, wait a minute. I understand the guilt offering is to get the guilt off of the guy to remind this leper that he doesn't need to be guilty about, you know, having been so lowly and having been leprous. It's not a problem. Let it go. But why the sin offering? Did he sin and, and that's why he got leprosy? Does it imply that being a leper means that you're a sinner? You got that right. Absolutely. Being a leper means you're a sinner. Being a human being means you're a sinner. And what's going on here, and I think this is awesome, when the Lord has him off of the sin offering, he's been cleansed of his leprosy. But God is reminding the cleansed leper that he's still a sinner, and there's still a more important cleansing that needs to take place. Oh, you're physically fit now. You're, you're well. You're physically healed. But you're still a sinner. You still have a sin nature that needs washing, that needs cleansing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You know, it's interesting, again, when you come to Christ and you begin to walk in Christ, there's kind of a, a, a subtle balance, a line that you walk. Because on the one hand, you're a royal priesthood. You have been made righteous. You're seen as righteous by Jesus. And that's great. But on the other hand, you're still a sinner. You still have the sin nature that is battling, Paul says, the flesh against the spirit. That's still going on. Now, you're clean. As far as God's concerned, when he looks at you, you're stamped with righteousness. You are clean. You are saved. But as far as the physical life goes, we are still sinners. And it's this, this back and forth. I once had a, a woman say to me, you know, I just at a previous church, I just wish we wouldn't talk all the time about how sinful we are. I wish we could talk sometimes about the fact that we are a royal priesthood. And she was right. Because there is that side of our Christian walk. We are people who walk in the shadow of glory. We are saved. And that's great news. But we're also sinners. And I think the Lord wants us to be aware of both. Well, going on, um, verse 21. And I love this because no leper is left out from the possibility of this cleansing ritual or ceremony, if you will. Verse 21, if he's poor and his means are insufficient, then he is to take one male lamb for a guilt offering as a wave offering to make atonement for him. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and a log of oil. And now instead of two more sheep, two more lambs, he, he takes two turtle doves or two young pigeons which are within his means. One shall be for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. 
Now, if you read on down, verses 24 through 31 describe the same exact process that we look at, looked at before, except instead of offering up the yearling, the, the two male lambs without defect, now the priest is just offering up a couple of turtle doves or a couple of pigeons. God doesn't leave anyone out. Well, yeah, but Rick, if this is a poor leper, he still has to come up with one male lamb for the guilt offering. That's right, there needs to be a lamb. There needs to be a lamb. Rich or poor, we all need the lamb. We need the sacrifice of the lamb. The lamb who pictures Jesus Christ, you've got to have at least one lamb. 1 Peter 1.19, Peter writes that we were bought with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now skip down to verse 32. Again, the rest of these verses on down, the same exact explanation of what the priest is to do and how he's to go through this process. Verse 32 says, This is the law for him in whom there is an infection of leprosy, whose means are limited for his cleansing. Again, great news for anyone who feels like their means are limited. Anyone ever feel like before the Lord your means are limited? Right here, dude. My means are extremely limited for cleansing. But God makes a way. Come to the Lamb. Come to the Lamb for cleansing. Now, we shift gears a little bit from the leper himself to the idea of cleansing a house with leprosy. And we talked about house cleaning before in the last chapter. It gets more specific here, and this is interesting. Verse 33 tells us, The Lord further spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession, then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, Something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. House leprosy. House leprosy. We're talking leprosy on the walls. This is like Hammityville Horror or something. And see, you see something that's growing on the wall. What's happening here? Apparently, apparently there's some kind of an infectious mildew that bore some danger to the people. And the Lord's saying, hey, just because you're in the promised land doesn't mean there's not going to be problems. It doesn't mean there's still going to be, there's not going to be evil or uncleanness around you. And even in your houses, there may be a leprous mark that appears on the walls. Some have thought that the reason that the Lord put the mark of leprosy on the wall of the house was to remind the people that though he had given them the land, they still live in an unclean world. And again, I remind you of when Jesus said, John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Let me take a quick side note here. Share something with you. It just stood out to me. Verse 34. God says, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession. I give you for a possession. Who did God give the land of Canaan to? It's a real easy answer. Don't look for the hard one. It's the Jews. Israel. He gave them the land for a possession. Now remember we talked about this quite a bit on Sunday. He gave them the promised land. This was land he promised he gave to Abraham back when Abraham lived there. Before he left for the famine and came down to Egypt. Before they spent 400 years there and ended up enslaved. Before he brought them miraculously back across the desert through the Red Sea. The promised land. I am giving it to you. It is your possession. And lest you misunderstand this. The church is not new Israel. The church does not replace Israel. The church is the church. Israel is Israel. And the land is still their possession. It's what God gave to them. If you have any qualms with that, read the last few chapters of Ezekiel. 
when the lot the land is reallotted to all twelve tribes in a time yet future. Read the last three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14 of Zechariah, where God says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to fight for the land and give it back to you, Israel. It's their land. The land that God gave Israel for possession. Well, Rick, I, I mean, what's the big deal? Why do you keep bringing that up? You've got to understand that there's so much misunderstanding about this in the church today. It's, it's scary. You know that there are churches in America right now, I believe the Presbyterian Church is one of them, and there are some others, who have decided um, to divest their holdings in Israeli companies because of the whole Israeli-Palestinian thing. You know what I'm talking about? They are pulling money out of investments as a large-scale church, as a denomination, saying we are no longer going to support something that has to do with Israel because of Israel's part in the Israeli-Palestinian problem. So we're pulling our money out. These are churches doing this. When the Bible says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I will love him who loves them. I will bless him who blesses them. And I will curse those who curse you. And it's scary to me that, that, that churches, Christians, could look at Scripture and be completely blind to the truth. Well, Rick, that sounds a little arrogant. I'm just telling you what it says. Now, maybe I'm simple-minded. And if I am, then praise God, I want to be simple-minded just for believing the Bible says what it means and means what it says. It's just there. I don't have to add to it or take away from it. It's clear. Yeah, Rick, you're taking, taking all this stuff literally? Yeah. Uh, are we supposed to? Isn't that why God gave it to us? I mean, isn't it silly to think, and I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but isn't it silly to think, it's my birthday, I can do it, isn't it silly to think that God would give us His Word and then say, now, there are all kinds of little tricks and hooks in here and and, and little surprises, and you just got to guess what it means. I love that. We just sit back and you're going to be guessing it, oh, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. No, that's not why He gave us the Bible. He didn't give us the book of Revelation, as I talked about Sunday, apocalypsis, unveiling, to put a veil over our eyes and make it difficult for us. He gave us the Bible that we might understand His plan, we might come to know Him better, and not be all confused. That's the way the world works, that's what Satan does. Make it mysterious, confound the people, confuse them, keep them off-center. And God says, no, I'm just going to give them the truth. And let them study that. Read that down. So if anyone disagrees or argues on any of these points, I just say, read this. And you tell me, what does it say? Not what do you think it means. Not how you can jump through this hoop to make it fit your own particular tradition. What does it say? Where were we? Verse 35. So, then one... Then one who owns the house shall come to the priest, tell the priest something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. Verse 36. The priest shall then command that that they empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the mark, so that everything in the house need not become unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to look at the house. Verse 37. So he shall look at the mark, and if the mark on the walls of the house has a greenish or reddish depressions and appears deeper than the surface... Again, leprosy going deeper than the surface. Sin is deeper than the surface. A lot of, a lot of homes you go into today, friends and sometimes even, even Christian people, it looks nice on the surface. You know, the house looks nice until you leave and then what's really going on in there begins to appear. I, I knew a, a family in youth ministry was in the first church we worked in and 
first time I came over to the house, they invited Cheryl and I over for dinner. And I was young and wet behind the ears and didn't have a clue about anything. And they were the greatest family in the church as far as I was concerned. They were terrific. Until all three of their kids over the next three years ran away from home. And I started to discover the depth of the abuse that was going on in that home. It was unbelievable. And on the surface it looked great. They were a cool family. The house was just perfect. The kids all had their own rooms, had their stuff, they had the, the designer clothes. Everything seemed like it was right. It wasn't. Not underneath. Depressions in the walls. Deeper than the surface. Verse 38. And then the priest shall come out of the house to the doorway and quarantine the house for seven days. And the priest shall return on the seventh day to make an inspection. If the mark has indeed spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall order them to tear out the stones with the mark in them and throw them away in an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the house scraped all around inside, and they shall dump the plaster that they scrape off at an unclean place outside the city. And then they shall take other stones and replace those stones, and he shall take other plaster and replaster the house. Sounds a little extreme. God deals with sin in extreme ways, just as he does with leprosy. If, however, the mark breaks out again, and that in the house, after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house, and after it has been replastered, then the priest shall come in and make an inspection. If he sees the mark has indeed spread in the house, it is a malignant mark in the house. It is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house its stones, its timbers, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall take them outside the city to an unclean place. Man, he's going to rip apart the whole house? Well, what would you rather have? Your beautiful house standing or leprosy? It's your choice. Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your left hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into heaven missing one of these so important pieces of, of body. <laughs> Then it is to go into hell and to retain all that you've got. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying I think we cling a little too tight to stuff. I think we hold on to things a little too long and God's saying, hey, if it's sin, if it's causing you to sin, get rid of it. We're going on, verse 46. Moreover, whoever goes into the house during that time that he is quarantined, it becomes unclean until evening. That would be even the inspector who goes in to inspect the house. Well, he inspects it, but then he's unclean until evening. Likewise, whoever lies down in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. Verse 48. If, on the other hand, the priest comes in and makes an inspection, and the mark is not indeed spread in the house after the house has been replastered, then the priest shall pronounce that the house is clean because the mark has not reappeared. Now, to cleanse the house then, he shall take two birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop and he'll go through the same process that he did for the leper which we're going to talk about again on Sunday these two birds cedar wood scarlet string and hyssop interesting when he describes that process and down in verse 54 it tells us this is the law for any mark of leprosy even for a scale what's a scale back in chapter 13 verse 30 it rings, and I'll read this to you real quickly. Where is that? Verse 30, the, infect, the priest shall look at the infection, and if it appears to be deeper than the skin, and there is thin yellowish hair in it, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a scale. It is leprosy of the head or of the beard. So a scale is a dry kind of leprosy. It's active. It's not pussy like other leprosy might be, but it's a dry kind of leprosy. So that's what a scale is. Verse 55 says, And for the leprous garment or house... And 
for a swelling and for a scab and for a bright spot. Now watch this. Listen. Why? To teach. Why these two chapters of instruction on leprosy? To teach. Why does God get so specific and so in-depth about all these things, these regulations? To teach. To teach. To teach. When they are unclean and when they are clean. Literally, he's saying to teach in the day they are unclean and in the day, yom is the word there, in the day when they are clean. Now listen to me on this. We're almost done. The application... The application of the regulations for the cleansing of a leper might have been practical for Israel had there been anyone healed of leprosy in that time. Remember as we started out, nobody was. So these laws are impractical, irrelevant. They had no basis or point in the life of an Israelite because an Israelite would have to be healed for them to be put into effect. They're almost useless that Gentile Naaman, he's the only one who could have benefited from these laws, but he wasn't even a Jew, so it wouldn't apply to him. But again, Jesus came. And when he came, the dusty old leprosy law suddenly became useful. Lepers rushing to the priests to be healed, seeking or having been healed, seeking the ceremonial cleansing by the law. And I want you to hear this and listen closely. The practical, the practical that seemed for so many years impractical became messianic. And there's an application for us. A practical became messianic. A sign of the presence of one who could actually heal. Again, Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus said to John the Baptist's disciples, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Tell him the blind are in receiving sight, and the lame are walking, and the lepers are cleansed. Jesus answered John's question with messianic assurance. John knew what Messiah was going to do when he came. John had a sense about these things. He'd read Isaiah 61. He knew the Old Testament law. He had some sense of understanding. And if these things were going on, this would say to John, Messiah is here. The wonderful practical power of the leprosy law was not realized until Jesus came on the scene. How does that apply to us? I believe Jesus wants us to apply the practical power of the leprosy law to his second messianic appearance to his second coming what does that mean? if listen if we only apply these things practically in our lives if we look at the Old Testament law if we look at the Ten Commandments and if we take these laws these 613 as they're all broken out Jewish laws and we say we're going to practically follow these as Frank has said before, I don't know why anyone would want to, but if we were going to look at all this and say, okay, practically, I'm going to live my life by this because I want to be righteous. So I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to do them practically, and I'm going to apply them. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to look at them and think about how to walk during the day. And I'm going to apply all this stuff because I want the Bible to be practical to me. If we do these things, apply them practically or morally, just to be better people, things are going to get messy. They're going to get messy because you can't do it. And I caution you as we continue to study through Leviticus, you cannot do it. You can't keep these laws. 
Well, yeah, we made all this application about sin in our lives and, and how to walk and how to live. Yeah, but you can't do it. If all you're doing with this stuff, if all anyone does with the Bible is say, I just want to apply it to my morality, we miss the whole point. If you apply these things messianically, you will discover that you are practically being cleansed. If you just apply them practically, things are going to get messy. But if you apply them messianically, you will be practically cleansed as you walk. Does that make sense? Shake your head up and down if it does, or side to side if it doesn't. Not quite yet. Okay, I'm going to read you a verse, and I think it will make sense out of this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John writes, this is our last verse. Beloved, now we are children of God. But it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. Listen to this now. And everyone who has this hope, what hope? The hope of His appearing. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. If we will live our lives, if we will pursue righteousness because we are waiting for Him to come messianically, because we are looking for His return, it will purify us. If we're just living our lives with biblical morality because we just want to be moral people, we're going to fail and mess up and it's going to be a problem the rest of the days of our life. But if we're living looking to the coming of Jesus, we're going to get purified. We're going to be cleansed. It's going to change us as we walk, as we live. Because everyone who has the hope of Jesus' messianic coming doesn't get messy, but gets purified. And that's the point of this study. That's why we go through these things. To drive us to Jesus. And to keep our eyes open to His second coming. Father, Lord, thank You for the reminder of Christ. Thank You personally, Father, again this week for reminding me to keep my eyes fixed on the coming of Jesus. Because it makes all this stuff relevant. Lord, as we studied it, as the priests learned about all these leprosy laws and then couldn't apply them because they weren't looking. They were only applicable, Lord, when Jesus came. And so I pray that you will make our own righteousness practical and applicable as we look for Jesus' coming. As we long for His coming. As we wait expectantly for you to call us home. Father, bless the hearing of this word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.